When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded. But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Warning. This podcast contains explicit language and details acts of violence. Listener discretion is advised. A skull, a smoking gun, and red eyes. Those are images people usually associate with something bad, something evil. But for some inside the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, that imagery is seen as a sign of loyalty to a lethal brotherhood, a unifier. In 2007, Deputy Curtis Sykes joined the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department Gang Enforcement Task Force, or GET, at the Palmdale Station. The GET team is part of Operation Safe Streets, the department's gang bureau, which is, ironically, a place where lots of deputy gang members end up working. Sykes was recommended to the unit by Deputy Douglas Parkhurst. Sykes and Parkhurst worked together before at the North County Correctional Facility. The duo became partners on Palmdale's GET team. Court documents describe the two as, quote, like brothers. They, quote, developed a strong bond based upon mutual respect and trust that they still share to this day. In 2009, Sykes moved to the Compton GET unit and worked with Deputy Steve Vargas. The two also got close and decided to get matching tattoos. They worked with a Pico Rivera tattoo artist and came up with a design, the skull with glowing red eyes holding a smoking revolver. There's a bandana wrapped around the top of the skull with the letters OSS for Operation Safe Streets. Behind the skull are two playing cards, an ace and an eight of spades, also known as a dead man's hand. Each tattoo is numbered and placed on the lower leg. This was the birth of the Jump Out Boys. And this is a tradition of violence, a history of deputy gangs inside the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. The Jump Out Boys were incredibly organized. They kept records about the gang, how it functioned, how someone became a member, and how they had a so-called black book listing all the people they've killed. This has been reported on by the LA Times and LA Weekly. Here's the meaning behind their tattoo from their records, which I asked an actor to read. The Jump Out Boys was an idea that was thought of by the first few members. The name Jump Out Boys was given to us in Compton by various gang members who we all had contact with on a daily basis. The red eyes will be on all Jump Out Boy tattoos. If the gun is smoking, that means that the member has been involved in at least one shooting. The number you were given means you are part of an organized brotherhood that follows a structure in order to compile and review the members who are entered into a booklet. They even had the blessing of higher-ups like Paul Tanaka to operate outside of the law, to quote, work in the gray area. LASD personnel engaged in activity that was plainly illegal. Here's the gang's mission, read verbatim. The mission and origin of the Jump Out Boys is to recruit real people 
whose work ethic is above all others anywhere. Jump Out Boys are alpha dogs who think and act like the wolf, but never become the wolf. They understand where the line needs to be crossed and crossed back. They need to work hard. They need to get guns. They need to take bad people to jail. And sometimes they need to do the things they don't want to do in order to get where they want to be. In conclusion, they need people like us who gets there first and leaves last. Jump Out Boys are not afraid to get their hands dirty without any disgrace, dishonor, or hesitation. We are committed to each other, committed to our job, and committed to excellence. In 2011, the gang began recruiting, and the tattoo gained popularity among deputies. Sykes hit up his old partner Parkhurst, who was working on Catalina Island. He asked Parkhurst if he was up for the skull and revolver tattoo. Parkhurst was, quote, honored to be asked since he was no longer a member of GET and said yes to getting inked. Deputy Julio Martinez worked GET at Compton Station between 2009 and 2010 with Deputy Ronnie Perez. Around 2010, Martinez transferred to the unit in East LA and briefly partnered with Deputy Anthony Paez. Martinez noticed Vargas's tattoo while he was working out at the East Los Angeles Station gym in 2011. Martinez told his partner, Ronnie Perez, about the design. Parkhurst, Martinez, Paez, and Perez were later tattooed together on the same day. Deputy Jason Lanska saw the design and received the tattoo about a week later. After getting their tattoos, the Jump Out Boys quickly implemented their mission of, quote, crossing the line. On August 24, 2011, Martinez and Paez claimed in their reports that they witnessed a drug deal in front of a marijuana dispensary while they were on patrol. Luckily, local media outlet LA Weekly obtained video surveillance of what actually happened. In the video, a man, later identified as Antonio Rhodes, is seen exiting the Superior Herbal Health Dispensary. He's followed by a security guard, Dante Benton. The two bump fist. Martinez said that the fist bump was actually a drug transaction. He also wrote that Antonio saw the officers and reached for a gun. Martinez says he chased Antonio into the dispensary, but the door locked after Antonio got inside. Martinez says he demanded the door be opened and saw Antonio stashing a gun through a window. But the tape shows something else. Antonio goes back into the dispensary's display room, returns a bag of marijuana to the cashier, and stands against a wall. Then, Martinez and Paez come into the dispensary and order everyone to leave. After the store clears out, Paez reaches into a display room drawer and plants a black handgun on a chair. Martinez wrote in his report that after a, quote, protective sweep, that he and Paez uncovered an unregistered gun, along with three others that belonged to security guards of the dispensary. The deputies arrested Antonio and charged him with possessing an unregistered weapon. However, the gun placed into evidence was chrome. Remember, the one on the video was black. Eventually, the charges against Antonio were dropped. Other people outside of the gang were starting to notice the Jump Out Boys. Robert Rifkin, who was captain of Operation Safe Streets Bureau at this point, spotted the tattoo on Deputy Jason Lanska at a golf tournament in 2011. He asked Lieutenant Henry Saucedo to investigate. Several months later, in February 2012, Saucedo and Sergeant Patrick Tapia opened up the trunk of Curtis Sykes and Stephen Vargas' squad car. Inside, they found a fitness magazine with four pages of an article titled Police Gang Discovered stuffed in it. Tucked next to that article was the Jump Out Boys manifesto. Tapia and Saucedo took the documents they discovered to their lieutenant, who instructed Saucedo to inform the GET team that this conduct was unacceptable. That message didn't appear to have any impact on the Jump Out Boys. They kept up what they were doing, and worse, just a few weeks later, they killed someone. Wait. 
When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On March 7th, 2012... 22-year-old Arturo Cabrales was hanging out at his house with his friend, Freddy Solis. As he was standing in the yard, he saw a group of deputies harassing his uncle. The deputies, who included jump-out boy Anthony Paez, were trying to get into the home without a warrant. Attorney Umberto Guizar represented the Cabrales family. He says the deputies swarmed Arturo and his uncle in their yard. Paez and the other deputies rolled up on him. They went up a one-way street in the opposite direction and pulled up on them. So we called them the jump-out boys. and jumped out on them when they were talking. Humberto says the deputies were watching Arturo. They had evidence that he had been involved in a lot of drug sales. Like, even before the incident happened. And at the time, this was before marijuana was, you know, legal. And this was near the Watts Towers and near the area where a lot of drugs were being sold. So I believe that my client, Arturo Cabrales, was involved in the marijuana distribution. They were even out of their territory when they went there. Out of their territory, meaning the deputies were outside of the area they were supposed to be patrolling. When they rode up on him, they rode up in a way, like demanding him to let him in. And he said, no, you can't come in unless you have a warrant. Pius was saying, I don't need a fucking warrant. So like that. They try to force... And, and he said, you can't come in, you can't come in. And then when he realized they were going to come in no matter what, he ran and Pius went in and they shot him in the back six times. Arturo's family filed a lawsuit against L.A. County claiming the deputies didn't get Arturo medical attention after he was shot. They allege the deputies let him die, bleeding out alone on the pavement. As Arturo was dying, the deputies shut down the area and did a raid. They found the gun, and they found a big scale, which is big scales that they use to measure marijuana. Not even a gram, absolutely zero marijuana. 
He had a four-year-old son that was raised without a father now because they shot him and killed him and, and executed him, you know, for selling marijuana, for not doing anything wrong other than running away. He didn't want to get arrested. That's why he threw the gun. He didn't want to get caught with a gun. And instead, he ends up getting shot in the back multiple times and executed, murdered. Jump Out Boys Curtis Sykes and Stephen Vargas responded to the scene. Martinez showed up too and allegedly recovered a gun on the other side of the home's fence. LASD homicide detectives concluded in their reports that Arturo turned and pointed a gun at Paez, who then shot him in self-defense. But the medical examiner said that was impossible. Witness accounts also indicate that Arturo was unarmed when he was shot. There was a witness that we had that said they heard a gun, they heard the noise of a gun fall from a, over a fence and ended up on the floor in their yard. And when they shot him, that was after that had happened. So clearly he was unarmed when he was shot. And I was able to establish he had thrown the gun over a fence before he got shot. So they knew he didn't have a gun in his hand. And they just still shot him in the back as he was running. That's cold. The case was eventually settled. The family received $1.5 million, with taxpayers on the hook for the award, along with attorney costs. In April 2012, the Jump Out Boys became, quote, concerned about changes within LASD, according to court documents. Martinez tried to rally some deputies to sit out the department's annual Baker to Vegas charity run, but they changed their minds and participated. During the run, the LA Times published a story about the gang and their tattoos. The article also claimed the group was the subject of a probe. Internal Affairs interviewed 21 GET deputies about the gang. Five deputies said they were asked to get the tattoo. Deputy Chad Sussman said he was, quote, honored to be asked because he, quote, considered the deputies as hard-working deputies who go out and take bad guys to jail. The probe uncovered several instances of the gang and its existence. Parkhurst sent an email to Mike Zollo, a former GET member, asking Zollo to get the Jump Out Boys tattoo. Perez sent a photo to his girlfriend displaying his tattoo on his lower leg. Deputy Martinez sent a photo to a group text with several deputies of multiple LASD brass, including then-under-Sheriff Tanaka, flashing what looks like gang signs and showing off tattoos. The Times reported that Captain Bob Rifkin gathered the Jump Out Boys and told them that the creed being exposed brought shame on the department. But no one would be fired for it. But according to internal documents, witnesses said Rifkin encouraged them to, quote, peek over or, quote, bend the line to get results, echoing Tanaka's work in the gray area speech. Rifkin asked Martinez, a shot caller in the Jump Out Boys, to look into the gang. Rifkin met with Vargas, who identified deputies Lanska, Paez, Parkhurst, Perez, Sykes, and himself as members. In May 2012, they were all relieved of duty and put on administrative leave. The following year, they were discharged from the department. The seven deputies all filed appeals to get their jobs back. Meanwhile, Internal Affairs was taking a second look at the dispensary raid Martinez and Paez carried out in 2011. They found that Martinez lied in his report. In 2014, Martinez and Paez were criminally charged for their actions in the dispensary raid. They were both hit with felony counts of obstructing justice, perjury, and filing a false police report. The next year, the Civil Service Commission, who decides whether county employees were justly fired or not, voted to overturn the discharges against Lanska, Perez, and Parkhurst. They had their discharges reduced to 30-day suspensions. That's not unusual. The commission usually sides with deputies. Sykes and Vargas filed their own cases to reclaim their jobs. Chief James Lopez, who discharged the group, testified that allowing the Jump Out Boys to keep their jobs would be, quote, devastating to the public trust. But Lanska, Perez, and Parkhurst won their cases in 2017. Rounded to the nearest thousand, 
they were awarded payments of $103,000, $163,000, and $197,000, all funded by taxpayers. In 2016, the Civil Service Commission recommended that Anthony Paez, who killed Arturo Cabrales and lied about planting guns at the dispensary, be rehired. In 2019, Martinez pled guilty to falsifying police reports, which by then had been reduced to a misdemeanor. He was sentenced to 300 hours of community service. Because of his plea, the charges against Paez were dropped. Once that was done, the deputies filed civil suits to have their suspensions from the sheriff's department removed. Paez's termination was reduced to only a 15-day suspension in September of 2018. In a hearing on July 29, 2020, Paez's petition to work within the department again was granted. He also won back pay with interest. Here's attorney Umberto Guizar. There's clear evidence he planted a gun. There was video evidence showing that he planted a gun at the dispensary so they could arrest the guy at the marijuana dispensary. It was just, a, and they broke the cameras, surveillance cameras, except they forgot that there was, they didn't know there was one other camera. That guy that owned the dispensary waited till he got out of jail. He was pulled like 10 months in the Allen County Jail. When he got out, he came forward with that video, and that's when the, uh, the thing unraveled about what they did. But they still rehired him. They still rehired Anthony Pius. Which is just unbelievable. The Jump Out Boys are just some of the many deputies known to be in a deputy gang and allowed to work in the department. By 2014, Sheriff Lee Baca had resigned after his botched attempt to block an FBI investigation. That landed him with a federal indictment and later a conviction. He was replaced by interim Sheriff Jim Scott, then Jim McDonnell after an election. A new leader didn't stop the deputy gangs in the department. They continued to grow. By 2015, a new gang had formed at the Century Station, the Spartans. Brian Pickett's relationship with cops mirrored the experiences of many people of color. Getting pulled over, being questioned on the curb without cause, that kind of stuff. He still had a successful football career despite the harassment and played for the University of Texas at El Paso. It wasn't just playing football that he loved. He loved coaching children, too, especially his own young sons. He had plenty of experience mentoring kids, starting with helping his younger sisters with their homework throughout childhood. He was close with his girlfriend, Tamai Gilbert, and her young son. Tamai, says Brian, was very involved with the kids. He read with the boys and built them a playhouse in the yard. He had a passion for music, too. He was a skilled rapper, discussing police brutality, his faith, and the importance of family. On December 28th, Brian's third son was born. Just nine days later, Brian was killed by deputies. On January 6th, 2015, Deputies Edward Martinez and Ryan Rothrock responded to a family disturbance call, according to a district attorney report. Brian had been acting strange that day. His mom, Tammy, says she talked about it with her daughter. That particular day, it seemed a little different. And Burnett was like, Mom, I don't know why Brian is like so hyped today. Like, and I was like, Brian, are you okay? And he just kept rapping. Every time you would talk to him, he would rap to us in a song. Brian was cooking food on the stove and almost let it burn. His girlfriend scolded him for not paying attention. It was around nine o'clock at night. So finally he just went in the bathroom, closed the door, blast the music up real, real loud. And I was like, no, I have to go to work in the morning. Just, you know, we knocking on the door, he's not answering the door. So finally he came out and then him and Barnett continued to argue with one another. And I was like, Brian, you're not going to be able to stay in this house and do this music. She got to go to work. I got to go to school. And it just became where well, we know we wasn't going to get any sleep. And so I asked him, I was like, well, did you smoke something? Yeah, he smoked some weed, but we don't make you act like that. But he just was acting different. It was a different how he was moving. He was in the bathroom the whole time. I asked him to turn the music down and he turned it back up. So 
me and Barnett, we sat in the living room and she was like, mom, you have to do something. And I said, well, they told me that they would come and get him and take him to a psychological evaluation if I called them. The family had interactions with the police before concerning Brian. He struggled with his mental health, and Tammy called them in the past for help. Brian had been violently committed and tasered by deputies the year before when he was taken in for a mental health evaluation. The police had been to my house several times. Through Brian's depression and what we understand his illness now, we did understand then he was on a cycle up and down. Sometimes he's very, very happy. Sometimes he's laughing and joking. And then sometimes he's sad and he's depressed. When the deputies arrived that evening, he was in the bathroom, rapping to himself. A deputy told Tammy what was going to happen. He was like, okay, we're going to go in there and talk to him. If he doesn't want to go, we're going to have to, like, handcuff him and we'll try to make him leave. And all you can hear is bumbling, boots rumbling in the house. And then all of a sudden, you heard this loud bang. And then it was just quiet. Me and Barnett was standing there like, what's going on? Like, why is he not rapping? Why is he not talking anymore? Deputies Renee Berrigan, Ryan Rothrock, Miguel Ruiz, and Edward Martinez went into the bathroom and knocked Brian to the floor. Once Brian was down, the deputies tasered him repeatedly. The deputies hogtied Brian and dragged him into the living room. Pools of blood gathered around his head. The deputies did not provide medical attention, according to witness testimony. They came out and they started drilling me more questions. We need to know if he's on any drugs. He said, I did everything, but he, he's a jokester like that. Like, I never know. I tested him before as far as like to see if he had drugs in the system, because that's a, a thing that I would do in my house so that you could stay at my house. But what I feel like they were trying to do is to get my attention off my son. So all I saw was them, like his hands was handcuffed behind his back and they like drug him. They just drug him and laid him on the living room floor and we're standing at the door and I was like, okay, so what's happening? Like, why is he not talking? They was like, oh, he's okay. He's okay. And then all I could see is like this foam and like some blood like coming out of his mouth. And I was like, he's not okay. They didn't do CPR. They didn't try to assess his vital signs or anything. And then within maybe another 10 minutes, the ambulance came and start asking me the same questions of what kind of drugs he did, what did he do? And, and they asked, did anybody do CPR? Nobody did CPR. Why didn't anybody try to save my son? Why did anybody try to help him? Why, why would you just telling us to go outside? It's going to be okay. But we stood right there at the door and he, he was not moving. The family filed a civil lawsuit which was settled in March of this year after seven years of litigation. Because one of Brian's sons was not his biological child, attorneys for Los Angeles County argued that the boy was not entitled to any money. The family took the fight to the Court of Appeals and won, setting a new precedent for parents across California. It's one of the rare times that a change that can help families has come out of a police killing. But this doesn't change that Brian Pickett was killed by deputies, and his death did nothing to stop violence at the hands of deputy gangs. Just four months after Brian's death, deputies affiliated with the Spartans killed another man in South L.A. Deputy Jay Brown started out brutalizing people at Men's Central Jail with the 3,000 and 2,000 boys. He was alleged to be one of their affiliates. In 2010, he broke 22-year-old Christopher Lee Wilder's jaw. Brown attacked Christopher, punching him in the face repeatedly. Christopher was only inside Twin Towers Correctional Facility for a total of 17 hours. A jury later awarded him over $80,000, funded by taxpayers. 
Just a few years later, in 2014, Brown's violence poured into the streets. He shot and killed Johnny Martinez. Johnny was having a mental health crisis. We talked about the incident in an earlier episode. Sometimes he would think and get paranoid that people were coming after him. That's Ryan Casey, the Martinez family attorney. He says that when Deputy Jason Zabala and four other deputies, including Brown, arrived, they ignored neighbors who tried to explain what was going on. Johnny had a small steak knife in his hands and laid it on the ground when asked, but the deputies still tasered and pepper sprayed him. Brown, Zabala, and two other deputies fired 36 shots at Johnny, killing him. Zabala has tattoos linking him to the Regulators and Cowboys deputy gangs. Ryan Casey says the tattoos came up in the case. We did have a lot of uh, evidence come up in the case regarding uh, tattoos that are affiliated with gangs being on or potentially on the deputies that were involved in in the shootings and that these were linked historically to, or I should say potentially to, Uh, deputy gangs or cliques that were associated with high levels of uh, excessive force and violence. In that particular case, it's hard to say whether or not there was a causal or correlated sort of link, but it was very interesting because there were very, very uh, resistant on letting us get into any of the evidence regarding tattoos, regarding gang affiliation. Uh, We had to file many motions to compel production of that information with the court because They were instructing their clients not to answer. Jay Brown is alleged to be an affiliate of the Spartans, the younger generation of the regulators. His violent acts on the streets of South L.A. were just getting started. Tayshawn Gaither was walking through the streets of South L.A. on the night of April 10th, 2015, in the midst of a mental health crisis. He thought someone was after him. I spoke to his attorney, Eric Valenzuela, in 2021, He said that Tayshawn tried to hide from the hallucinations by going inside of a tow yard as the gate shut. One of the cars had the keys in the ignition, and he climbed in. The lot's employees saw Tayshawn and used another car to block him in as they called deputies. The first two that showed up shot pepper balls into the car Tayshawn was in. Then, Deputy Jay Brown and two others showed up. They shot pepper balls at the car again. Everyone except for Brown. He used a gun. All the security footage of the shooting was taken by the sheriff's department, who says they were unable to retrieve anything from the files. Valenzuela says that the officers' accounts of the shooting were contradictory, too. They settled the case for 72500 taxpayer dollars. But that didn't mean the case was a slam dunk. Tayshawn's shooting is a great example of how district attorneys across the United States use the cops' words against yours when they shoot you. In 1994, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Heck v. Humphrey, establishing the Heck Doctrine. Because of that case, you cannot file a civil rights lawsuit for police brutality if you've entered a plea for any charges resulting from the incident. So, Because Tayshawn had already entered a guilty plea of assault with a deadly weapon on a police officer, his claims of excessive force could be jeopardized in the civil case. Valenzuela told me that district attorneys are complicit in police brutality because of action like this. In his experience, he has seen DAs charge people excessively if they threaten to sue, but promise to release them from custody if they plead guilty. The Spartans were groomed and abetted by Paul Tanaka's preachings to work in the gray area. Tanaka was gone by 2014, but his policy of not charging deputies for their crimes continued, and people continued to be killed. 23-year-old Christian Medina was standing on a sidewalk in the Florence neighborhood of Los Angeles on the morning of March 16, 2016. He made a 911 call at 4 a.m. from a payphone. He told the operator that someone was getting beat up with a gun. He said the suspect was wearing a hoodie and shorts, which is what Christian was also wearing. Deputies Renee Berrigan, one of the deputies who killed Brian Pickett, and Jay Brown responded to the 911 call. They saw Christian matching the description. They show up. He's still standing by the payphone that he called from. 
So, I mean, that should be, right? Like the first thing you notice, if he was the one calling from, and he's standing next to the payphone, that's probably not the person that was holding the gun beating somebody up. And they start shooting at him. They, the first shots fired from inside, inside the, the police vehicle. And then they get out of the cars and they continue shooting. He was shot 13 times. He passed away at the scene. A county medical examiner said that several of the gunshot wounds were consistent with Christian laying on the ground. Christian struggled with severe depression, mental illness, and was suicidal, according to his sister. The Medina family's lawyer, Jack Bazarkanian, said that Christian's mental health issues were well-documented, something the LASD didn't handle well. Our police department and our sheriff's department does, does a poor job of training people on how to handle themselves when there's somebody with a mental illness involved. Both deputies claim that Christian had a gun and was in a, quote, shooting stance. Bazarkanian doesn't believe this explanation is logical. If I'm standing somewhere with my back turned and I hear police sirens right behind me and like lights flashing at me, I mean, is it unreasonable to figure somebody might turn around and look at that? Or if you're driving up to me from behind with your sirens on, flashing lights at me, and I turn around and put my hand up because to block, let's say, the light from my eyes, am I putting my hands up to shoot you? I mean, is that enough for you to start shooting at me from with from like inside your car? I think that's that's the saddest part that it was like, nobody ever tried talking to him. Like, why don't you park your car a little bit further, use your intercom, try to speak to him? Nobody was in danger. You didn't see anybody around him. There was no gun or any weapon, for that matter, found on Christian. Absolutely none. He didn't even have a knife, a pocket knife. I mean, he didn't even have a plastic knife on him. And it could have been avoided. Like that, that, I think that's the biggest takeaway. It could have very easily been avoided. The district attorney at the time, Jackie Lacey, concluded that the deputies had acted lawfully in self-defense. George Gascon's DA office looked at the case this year. They came to the same conclusion. I'm not surprised. I mean, that's such a gray area. I think it would have been hard for the DA's office to prove beyond reasonable doubt. There's a difference between civil cases and um, criminal cases. The burden of proof is, is a lot higher in a criminal case. In a civil case, we just have to, we just have to be a li little bit more believable than the other guy, right? Like the scale and the scale, if the scale tips a little bit in our favor, then we can win. And in a criminal case, beyond reasonable doubt which is a much higher burden of proof. So I think it, might, it, was, it would probably have been a tough case for, for them to win. And Medina's family filed a lawsuit against LA County, which was settled in 2017 for $650,000. Taxpayers footed the bill. Hey girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. 
my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. August 16, 2017, around 7 p.m., two deputies with the Century Station's Summer Violent Crime Enforcement Team were driving their patrol car near Nickerson Gardens. Deputy Ryan Rothrock and his partner pulled up to a car parked in the wrong direction. 34-year-old Kenneth Lewis was standing near the vehicle. He ran away through a housing complex and fell. Rothrock claims Kenneth pointed a gun at him. Then, Rothrock says he shot Kenneth. As he fell to the ground, bleeding, Rothrock shot him several more times. A deputy from Century Station later found a gun at the scene. Rothrock claims that's the gun that Kenneth pointed at him. Kenneth died later at the hospital. He is survived by his son, who was three months old at the time of his death. His family settled with the county for just over $1 million, funded by taxpayers. The county was additionally responsible for picking up the cost of everyone's legal fees. The next known deputy gang killing happened just two months later. They don't have very much institutional memory, and they seem to be apt to relive their own mistakes, and they don't learn the lessons from before. And that's true of a lot of departments in in actuality. And the first thing that they do is they try to sweep everything under the carpet. This is Jorge Gonzalez, attorney for the Sendejas family. He represented the family after the killing of their son, 20-year-old Ricardo Sendejas Jr. Sadly, Jorge passed away in March of this year. This is from an interview I did with him about Jr.'s case in 2021. His relationship with his father had broken down. His parents were, were separated and remarried with other people. And so, you know, if he was behaving himself, he'd live with his mother. If not, she'd ship him off to be with his father, who lived down in Compton. The separation and change in home life exacerbated mental health issues for Junior. According to his father, he remained a good kid and a hard worker. Occasionally, he had some behavior flare-ups, but nothing wild. Fights with his dad or skipping school. Essentially, you know, the worst thing that he has actually had actually done is smoke a little pot. Junior eventually landed in L.A. County's Dorothy Kirby Center. It's a lockdown facility, and it has mostly people that are mentally ill. He was diagnosed with antipersonality disorder. For lay people, it just means that the person who acts without thinking doesn't think about the consequences of their actions. While at Dorothy Kirby Center, Junior was brutally beaten by another incarcerated youth. That person had been hospitalized 43 times for attacking other people. The family sued the county for not protecting their son. The case was settled. Once Junior was home, things were different. 
He retreated and self-medicated. On November 2nd, 2017, there was another incident with Junior. He was armed with an assault rifle of some type. And people in the neighborhood saw him in the backyard. He was like poking his head up over the fence. Somebody called it in. He was in his father's yard, not threatening anybody. Deputy Samuel Aldama, who is an alleged deputy gang member, and Deputy Edgar Cuevas responded to the call. Cuevas told investigators that he heard and felt a gunshot go off around him. He called for assistance. Compton and Century Station deputies responded. An armored vehicle was dispatched. Soon, helicopters and a SWAT team swarmed the area. That means the minute they hear that the guy's armed with a gun, that's it. That's their excuse to go and shoot the guy. So if this is a person who, who is, uh, you know, has the proclivity of using, you know, lethal force or the desire to use lethal force, it's preordained. He's going to go out and he's going to use it because he's got a built-in excuse. You know, not only will they be able to justify the use of lethal force, but then everybody's going to take him out to the bar and they're going to slap him on the back. During this, Junior's family tried to explain to the deputies that he struggled with his mental health and was harmless. They were arrested. They took the dad. They took the stepmother. The stepmother, uh, and she was with one of her daughters. They put him in police cars, and then they take him to the station. And then after they hold him for a while and they talk to him and stuff, they make him sign a thing that says, I admit this was just a detention, not an arrest, you know. And then um, essentially some deputies who wanted to go into the house figured out that the keys had been left in the van. And so they went and they, and they told the girl to give, the, give them the keys. And then essentially they threatened them that if they, they threatened her that if she didn't do it, that they would call children's services and have them come pick them up and take them from the family. You know, that's how they talked to the little 13, 14 year olds. Yeah. Right in front of the neighbor. You know, and of course the little girl doesn't know what to do. She gave him the keys. And then they go in the house and they rummage it for stuff. And they don't don't know what they're looking for. They don't find anything useful. Junior, meanwhile, hopped a fence and crept through the alleyways between houses. He asked his neighbors to let him hide inside. There was a kid inside that house that uh, Ricardo, when I'm tapped on the window, was saying, hey, let me in the house, let me in the house. You know, the cops are looking for me. And and the kid would say, no, I don't think so. I mean, my dad will get me in trouble if I do, you know. I can't, mm-hmm. I can't. And Ricardo said, asking him, but he wouldn't let him in. So what happened was Ricardo decided to put down the rifle behind a little gas meter. You know how they're on the side of the house? And, mm-hmm. it, and he couldn't see it. It literally covered it. The police report claimed that he pointed a rifle at officers, though he was unarmed at the time. They fired three shots at him. He died in a nearby hospital. This is SWAT team. You think these are like the best trained, most ethical of all the officers, really the leadership core, you know? And in the end, you, you get the impression that they're like trained assassins, you know? You can see it in the picture. It's very, from the street, they never would have been able to see the, the, the weapon. And so he was unarmed. He was shirtless he had on these uh you know these long basketball shorts and flip-flops and you could clearly see he was unarmed when he was shot but yet the police report claimed that uh that he pointed a rifle at him and when the when the deputy thought he was in danger he shot him complete lie the alleged bullet that cueva said he heard and felt never recovered junior's dad was left in the dark about what was happening including his son's death. When he asked what was going on, he wasn't told. He was detained and taken to a park, then a station, and held overnight. The rest of the Sendejases were detained overnight, too. Ricardo Sr. went back home. His son wasn't there. He returned to the station, where a sergeant finally told him his son had been shot. The family was left to try cold-calling hospitals to find their son. Junior was listed under a wrong birthday, making the search more difficult. But Junior had already died. The Sendejas family brought a civil rights lawsuit against the county. 
It was settled for $825,000. County taxpayers paid for the settlement and attorney's fees on all sides, which were not part of the settlement. Litigation didn't stir up any information on deputy gangs in the case, but the county keeps a list of litigation related to deputy gangs. They call the file a, quote, chronological list of claims, lawsuits, and other settlement agreements involving allegations that a sworn member of LASD was a member of a secret society or clique. The Sendejas case is on it. Gonzalez didn't know this until I informed him during our interview. So I received a list from the County Board of Supervisors with a list of cases they've settled where deputy gangs are involved. And the Sendejas case is on there. They've, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, so I don't know what list you saw. I'd love to see it. There's a huge problem with deputy gangs. They're not going to give that information up very easily. The Spartans still appear to be active on the streets. In December 2019, Lyle Sprill got off work early. He was a welder working in downtown L.A. He grew up in South L.A. and decided to head back to the neighborhood for a bite to eat before a long drive back home. He parked at Golden Bird Chicken in Willowbrook that night. So he's in that parking lot. This is Greg Kirikosian. Lyle's attorney. And I think he went inside the barber shop at some point to say hi to some people. Went next door to the liquor store to get, I forgot what drink to eat, you know, so he can have. And he starts walking to his car very calmly, very slowly. As he's kind of doing that, there is a group of, I forget how many, six, seven, eight black gentlemen sitting on their car, kind of in the parking lot, not too far from him, but at least, you know, 20, 30 feet away. And two deputy cars or three deputy cars roll up. They all come out and they immediately start detaining this group of black gentlemen who are right outside the barbershop. They clearly see Lyle Spruill, who's at a distance away, continuing to walk in the other direction. He's going to his car that's on kind of the other side of the parking lot. This is Lyle's hometown. He knows the area and the people, and he knows not to get involved in things like this. But then... He opens the car door and is about to sit when another deputy car rolls in from kind of the other side of the parking lot. They park right in front of Lyle. They get out, start talking to him, make him get out of the car, and start asking a bunch of questions, searching him, you know... Were you involved in this shooting? There was apparently some shooting that happened like four hours before the deputies decide to arrive. But the initial group of deputies didn't even bother with Lyle. They knew he wasn't in that group of people that I guess they were looking for. He gets out and he knows this neighborhood. He knows the deputies. He's lived through what they've done before. He's heard of what they've done before. And even though he did nothing wrong, he had nothing on him, you know, no guns, no drugs, no nothing. He panicked and ran. Lyle's a big guy. He ran, but not far. He was tackled, arrested, and eventually detained and taken in for questioning. The deputies involved included Ryan Rothrock, who killed Brian Pickett and Kenneth Lewis. In their report, they lied and said that Lyle ran, turned back towards them, and shot at them. This was a surprise to Lyle. Why did you fire? And in the interview, he kind of like stops like, whoa, fire at what? Like, what do you, fire what? Why'd you shoot at the deputies? And he's like, shoot at what deputies? Like, if I shot at deputies, I'd be dead right now. No, come on, man. Just be cool. Tell us why you did it. Why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? Just kind of admit it. You know, it's no big deal. We just want to know why. Like, all friendly. And he is like, like, you're crazy. I've never shot at anybody. If I shot at anyone that day, I'd be dead right now. I did not have a gun. I did not fire. I did not do anything. And then he finds out all this information that, you know, there's all these reports that he started to run and then they're so detailed. I mean, this, this report of what this deputy saw is so beautifully detailed, which is kind of the funniest part of the case because he's trying to sell it in his report of what he saw and everything he remembers. And he remembers him running, giving him this look, stopping, 
turning around because he's running away, but he stops, turns. I think he even describes it like, like slinging his gun out and the muzzle flash was bright with orange hues with a dark circle in the middle and it was loud and it was a gunshot and it was aimed directly at me. Lyle Sprill was charged with the attempted murder of a police officer. The next six months of his life were spent in jail. His bail was posted at $4 million. I mean, there's no way he's going to pay the whole, whole amount, but even finding a bail agent who's going to make him pay 5% even is still just way outside anyone's means. So he just kind of sat there in custody for six months. And he was telling me he started going a little crazy. He started getting really nervous. He started because he knew he didn't do anything. One of the things they do is they call it ghost gun, okay? So my history of understanding what ghost gun was was a gun without a serial number. So you can't trace where it's from and that kind of stuff. Apparently, the LA Sheriff's Department gangs have a thing that they do for shits and giggles or whatever the fuck the motive is. I really don't know. What they do is they will just make up that somebody had a gun. They'll make it up that they later cannot find. It's a ghost. It's gone. They saw it. They heard it. You know, they know it was there, but damn it, it disappeared. And we can't find it anymore. But we all saw it and we all heard it and we all saw, you know, whatever. They corroborate each other's versions of what happened and what they saw. And that made me kind of look into the gangs because I'm like, this is the playbook. This is what they do. This is what the gangs do. Not every, not every deputy. This isn't a, you know, a normal LA County Sheriff's Department kind of playbook. This is a LASD gang playbook. They do this. This is exactly what they do. They do it to new recruits. They do it, you know, the, the members do it. I mean, it's just one of the things that, that they do. And I kept looking into it and looking into it. And that's when I started really making allegations and doing discovery with the Sheriff's Department regarding gangs. And so, yeah, that's what happened. And that's why I got the, started looking into the gangs a lot more because that was exactly what they do, the, the gangs. Lyle was scheduled for a preliminary hearing in June, a potentially life-altering sentencing hanging over his head for shooting at a police officer. It wasn't until the video came out that he was finally like, oh my God, like, there's no way I can actually get prosecuted for this. Turns out, surveillance video, once again, told a different story than deputies. They had the video. They knew that he didn't have any gunpowder residue, the gunshot residue on his hand, but they accused them of stopping, turning, firing one or two shots at Deputy Gonzalez and Gomez. And once the DA finally got all this evidence. The DA hadn't gotten the negative GSR, the gunshot residue analysis, hadn't seen the video footage. And the minute the DA finally got it, which did take, take some time, DAs are packed with a million stuff. Once they finally looked at it, they dropped all charges. The district attorney found that the charges lacked evidence. Lyle filed a civil lawsuit against LA County, which was settled for $500,000. And yes, that was funded by taxpayers. But once again, none of this had any impact on the culture of deputy gangs and a violent style of policing. All of this behavior was increasingly normalized and became part of the environment deputies were trained in. That's coming up next week. But before I go, I have a request. I want to hear from you. What are some of your questions about deputy gangs? We're going to have a special episode answering questions, so please send them to lasdgangs at gmail.com. You've been listening to A Tradition of Violence, a history of deputy gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Hosted and executive produced by Cerise Castle, music by Yellow Hill and Steels. We want to hear from you. If you have a question about deputy gangs or the LASD, please send an email to lasdgangs at gmail.com. For breaking news and updates on deputy gangs, follow at LASD Gangs on social media. 
To support Cerise's reporting and for exclusive bonus content, subscribe to the LASD Gang's Patreon. If you're enjoying A Tradition of Violence, please give us a five-star rating and leave a written review. Girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.